because mom won't let you go out and play. This is MuggleCast 38 for May 7th, 2006. CYGoDaddy.com is the number one domain registrar worldwide. Now with your domain registration, you'll get hosting, a free blog, complete email, and much more. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code RON, that's R-O-N, when you check out and get your .com domain name for just $6.95 a year. Get your piece of the internet today at GoDaddy.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Ben Shane. I am Eric Skull. I'm Laura Thompson. And I'm Micah Tannabel. Micah is back. The king has returned. Micah, it's been so long, I can't even... I almost forgot your voice. How could you forget my voice? Uh, Because, no reason. I'm sure Ben didn't forget my voice. I never forgot his voice. Seeing as he he reminds himself by imitating it every week. All right, well, we have a jam-packed show for you this week, and oh, we're even changing things up a bit again. It's 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 that time again, <laughs> I think. Uh, before we go anywhere else, first let's check in with Micah Tannenbaum for Best Week's Top Harry Potter News Stories. MogulNet is proud to present its newest affiliate in the Actor Site Network, TomFelton.ws. Headed by staffers Jess, Alyssa, Rachel, and some girl named Laura, it will be bringing you the latest news and updates on everyone's favorite Slytherin, as well as Order of the Phoenix filming news. So head over to the site right now and check it out. J.K. Rowling has emerged victorious in a privacy suit against the Daily Express. Joe and her husband, Neil, recently sued over the publication of their son David's picture. Regarding the case, Joe said, I'm delighted that my children's right to privacy has been recognized by the Daily Express. Neil and I will continue to protect that right on our children's behalf as vigorously as possible. British newspapers are now forbidden from photographing the children of celebrities in many situations. Rowling has previously succeeded in privacy complaints over publication of photographs of her daughter. Nintendo Power, the official magazine of the video game giant Nintendo, revealed in its most recent issue that Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire was a top-selling game for Game Boy Advance in April. This surprisingly high ranking comes as the Goblet video game turns six months old on May 10th. At Collector Mania 9 earlier this week, James and Oliver Phelps spoke a little to CBBC Newsround. With regard to filming the Order of the Phoenix movie, James said that filming is going really well and it's really good fun. While Oliver added that they met a few of the new actors to join the cast and they seem really cool and they're looking forward to working with them. They also discussed the fan attention they received because of the Harry Potter films. Both Variety.com and AOL Movie Phone have posted interviews with Rupert Grint and Jeremy Brock, director of Driving Lessons, that were conducted at the Tribeca Film Festival. To see and or read the full interviews, head on over to MuggleNet.com. Additionally, you can see pictures of Rupert from the premiere as well as pictures of Alan Rickman, who was at the festival to promote his new movie, Snowcake. That's all the news for this May 7, 2006 edition of MuggleCats. Back to the show. Alright, now let's get on to a couple of announcements here. Don't forget, uh, <laughs> buy a MuggleCast t-shirt. Why must they buy a MuggleCast t-shirt? Well, because poverty is a horcrux. That's right. Poverty as we know it is a horcrux and therefore must be stopped. Buy an MCT and defeat Voldemort. Also, as a result of a hasty agreement between us and JKR, a portion of our MuggleCast t-shirt revenue goes to supplying JKR with lined paper for her home in Edinburgh. You all heard what happened when she ran out. Book 7 was almost delayed a year just for that. Buy a MuggleCast t-shirt and supply JKR with lined paper. Thank you. I reread that uh, that little entry on her site the other day, and I was thinking, huh, we should have uh, started a little drive for JKR. <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> submit your paper, and we would we would just send her this box load of paper sent it from everyone. <laughs> you know, you know, it's not like she doesn't have the money for more. Yeah. You know. 
<laughs> I know, but the fact is it's donated from us. <laughs> All right, so starting this week on episode 38, we are commencing a new contest. Now, we've been working on this one for some time, and it's going to be huge, and it's going to change the way the world looks for a day. Um, literally, literally, literally. Nobody knows this, um, but I didn't I didn't tell the, the other co-hosts here, but I've actually been working with uh, Congress and President Bush on this one. Oh, yeah. We've been working on this bill uh, to get a certain day uh, claimed where your Muggle Cash shirt day. And I'm very pleased, proud, and excited <laughs> to announce today that we are <laughs> – indeed, we have it signed off. The bill was signed by Congress June 2nd of every year from here on out will be National Wear Your Muggle Cash Shirt Day. And I know what you're thinking. It means, well, what on earth does it mean? And if you didn't get it from that title, then you should just stop listening to the show. Just quit. Just unsubscribe from my Twitch. But on June 2nd, we want everyone to wear your Muggle Cash Shirt. That's a Friday. It's dress down days at, at your local work or school. You have no excuse. Wear your Muggle Cash Shirt Day. It's going to be where everyone who purchased a Muggle Cash Shirt to wear it out and support the show. Um, and what we're going to do, we're going to turn this into a contest. Everyone, including us, we're all going to wear our Muggle Cash T-shirts, and we're going to take a picture of ourselves somewhere in public, be it a McDonald's or your school or your library or some sidewalk or wherever. It's just some place, some public place where there's lots of people. Take a picture of yourself wearing the MuggleCast t-shirt. Send it in uh, to the address we'll give you later on. And one of five people will be randomly selected to get an early release in the MuggleCast Lumos Vegas 2006 t-shirt. Which is awesome! Right, everyone? Yep. Yes. Oh, incredible. Visit BenShane.com for exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not showing it to anyone. This is going to be a super secret shirt. When these five winners who get it, you're going to get it in like, you're going to get it a couple of weeks before Lubos. So only you guys will be able to see the shirt. And when we first saw it, we were just like, whoa. It, it is really, yeah, it is a sweet design. Yeah, these are only going to be on sale at Lubos. Or we're going to give them away, but um, we're going to give everyone else a chance to get this shirt. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about this in a couple of future shows. But for now, National Wear Your Mungle Cash Shirt Day is on June 2nd. Order now, and we can semi-guarantee you're going to get it in time. <laughs> and I forgot one last final reminder. It is the top of the month, so do not forget to vote for us on Podcast Alley. We're number eight right now. <laughs> Usually we're number one. Um, last month we were number one by uh, a couple hundred votes. Um, so that's great. And we love beating these podcasts. I think Harry Potter is a joke because um, then we get hate mail from their listeners and I enjoy reading it. Me so. too. Don't forget to vote for us on Podcast Alley. Just go to MuggleCast.com and on the listener to-do list, click on uh, – says vote for us on Podcast Alley or something. Listener rebuttals are back this week. This is Patrick Tierney from – from Pawtucket, Pawtucket, Pawtucket. Okay, is it possible? Is it possible with nonverbal spells to think one spell but verbally say another? For instance, could Snape had cast the spell Expelliarmus when he verbally said Avada Kedavra? Though on Dumbledore's Not Dead dot com, they actually bring that up, and they say that you know, since in the book there's an emphasis on wandless magic, that 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 could possibly be what it is. I don't see why you couldn't, or but I don't know. Couldn't they be sort of conflicting? How would how would the wand or whatever know which spell you were intending to 
to cast. That's the only thing. Well, could there be a priority system? Whereas uh, the nonverbal spell would take priority over the verbal spell. That's a good question, Andrew. Our next, <laughs> our next listener rebutter, 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 rebuttal comes from Allison, 15, from New Jersey. The gross people come from that state. <laughs> Representing. <laughs> Last week, you guys spoke about why Legend of Lemency was never mentioned in the first four books. I understand and agree with your practical answer that Harry simply hadn't encountered it, or maybe that J.K.R. hadn't thought of it yet. However, there is one line in the first book that hints strongly to Legend of Lemency, and I was wondering if you guys thought that J.K.R. could have possibly been implying that. On page 221 in the U.S. edition, it says, Potions lessons were turned into a sort of weekly torture. Snape was so horrible to Harry. Could Snape possibly know they'd found out about the Sorcerer's Stone? Harry didn't see how he could, yet he sometimes had the horrible feeling that Snape could read minds. When I read that, I immediately thought of Legend Lindsay and got really excited. Also, the fact that J.K.R. ended a section with this thought with this thought and didn't simply throw it out in the middle of a paragraph could hint that it really was legitimacy. I love to hear what you guys think. Thanks. I agree that it was. I think that it makes perfect sense because it's, you know, it's sort of foreshadowing that that's going to happen. And then after we read book five, we saw that, yeah. that Snape is an accomplished legitimum. <laughs> Um, I think that when we originally talked about legitimate, when I mentioned that it hadn't been brought up earlier, I also said that it was heavily implied, or at least I thought I did, or was thinking about it. I was mindful of how they always said that everybody could read minds, except the sharp difference was that Harry didn't relive his memories uh, whenever Snape or Dumbledore, Dumbledore often read Harry's mind too, in you know the first few books, especially uh, in Chamber of Secrets, one trying to determine if he was telling Harry the truth, if that was all he wanted to tell him, that kind of stuff. It was overplayed in the books and the movies. It just didn't seem like to be the same exact thing as legitimacy, which is what confused me. But I think that that's really what it, really what it turned out to be. But next listener, our next listener rebuttal comes from Virginia. You forgot to mention about how Merope's brother had had his memory modified by Tom Tom and Myrtle slash Voldemort. When Dumbledore, when Dumbledore and Harry were seeing Morphin's memory in the pensive, his memory sort of goes poof. That, in some point, he started to believe he killed the muggle, but he actually didn't. And note that Dumbledore told this to Harry, and it did not appear in the memory. Does anyone understand what that's saying? Yeah, I did. I did. I think it's accurate that we completely just didn't mention that and completely forgot about it. Um, how Morphin uh, does have his memory completely changed by uh, Tom Riddle. And I think that just emphasizes the... Um, I, I think Dumbledore said something like it took many strong wizards to like actually like pry into his mind and, and reveal the truth. Um, the same thing, I mean, Voldemort said that with uh, Bertha Jorkins, you know, how far, how deep they'd have to pry to get the truth out would probably destroy her. Um, but that just kind of shows, I think, that pensives are a lot less accurate than we could hope they were and that they can be fooled. I think even though they're omnipresent, even though you go in and you kind of can look around and be a third party, I think at the same time it all has to relate to the person and if the person's memory can be fake and stuff like that. Well, so. of course, because they pull that memory from their mind, so it's definitely going to be biased toward them. But for some reason, uh, was it last week's show we were talking? No, no, episode 36, I think it was. We were talking about this, and Jamie was saying that's the absolute truth, but then... The rest of us were saying, well, no, it's the truth uh, in Weren't we talking mind. about Veritaserum? Right. Seems like. not, yeah. not the Pensieve. 
Yeah, but well, we, we made what this relates. Yeah, we to. made the mention. Isn't that how this discussion got started? I think that the pensive is more subjective, and Veritaserum's not. No, no, it's no, it's not subjective because Emerson Emerson asked Emerson asked Joe in the interview he conducted when he went to her house or whatever, and she said that the the memories aren't biased towards the person the person's point of view, and he said that he had thought that because oh, did you she? know it makes okay. sense that yeah. So that's okay, that's the reason. Okay, wrong. My apologies. No, I wasn't trying to do this nightly. I'm just you know saying. The the pensive is a lot more, a lot less subjective because you can actually walk around in it. I think Dumbledore said at one point that was the magic of the pensive that you could uh, go back and view your memory. Yes, primarily as you remembered it, but also you could walk around a little bit and kind of see what else was going on. Um, and also, I mean, tying in book six when they're following the guy around. They kind of have to follow him, uh, but at the same time, they they have the uh, beauty of standing beside him when he's you know getting attacked by the gaunts instead of living inside his head or something like that. That wraps up this week's listener rebuttals. Remember, if you have anything to disagree about uh, concerning what we talk about on this week's show, don't forget to email it to MuggleCast at staff.mugglenet.com, and you will be on the show. Well. We'll say your name. Maybe. Isn't that cool? <laughs> say your name. Don't you like it? Mary? 300 ben. Marys just went, oh see, my bo- God! <laughs> ben, this is for the Bens out there. Ben, <laughs> Ben, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this week we are going to change things up a bit because we've taken your listener feedback into consideration. And the general consensus is that... People enjoy the chapter-by-chapter, but people are missing the character discussion. So we decided, starting this week, we are going to begin putting both of them into each show. So, we are going to cut down on the length of chapter-by-chapter. Kind of. Just a little bit. We're going to turn it into a weekly segment. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, And then, two weeks a month, we are going to do a character discussion, uh, which we're going to do in a moment, and then the other two weeks, we are going to do something general related to Harry Potter, maybe something going on in the news lately, it's going to be a main discussion that's basically miscellaneous, it could it could really relate to anything. I just want to applaud character discussion, how much I've missed ye. Um, it's, well, let's see, episode 30 was the last time we did it, and it's been a while, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. So. So this week, we are going to do Mad-Eye Moody. Moody gains his nickname from the magic eye that gives him a distinctly unsettling appearance. While one of his eyes is small, dark, beady, and relatively normal, the other is large, perfectly round, and a vividly vivid shade of blue. While his real eye behaves normally, the magic eye is unblinking and constantly rotating, taking everything around it. Moody also has part of one leg missing, which has been replaced with a wooden stump. Underneath his thick mane of dark gray hair, his face is a little more than mishmash of intersecting scars. A large chunk of his nose is also missing. All these things are the products of his time spent as an auror and a testimony to his countless fights with the agents of Lord Voldemort. So, he makes his grand appearance in Goblet of Fire. <gasps> or does no, he? No, he doesn't. We know he doesn't. <laughs> 
He lied to me. Alastor Mad Eye Moody. Where did what does Alastor oh, mean? Alistair. Alistair. Alastor. <laughs> Whatever. Actually, um, you know, I run the name origin section. Oh, so this is I a perfect that... question to pose to you. What is that at? Uh, Mugnet.com yes. slash nameorigins.shtml, I'm thinking. It's it's slash books uh, slash name underscore origin. Oranges, oranges. I forgot Mugglenet was organized. I thought we just threw everything in the root. We used to, but his his name actually means defender of mankind, which is interesting considering he's an or. That is actually also. <laughs> whenever I went and looked up the name on a different site, which I can't remember now, um, it said that it meant that that Alaster was actually way to credit your source. I know I'm so good at that. Anyway, that Alistair was a demon. And it stood for Tormenting Spirit or Nemesis. Uh, well, whoever wrote that was clearly smoking crack. Okay, continuing. No, I think, no, no, no. I think that it could have something to do with the fact that he's someone that Death Eaters are afraid of. Yeah. And that sort of represents him in book four towards the end. And in movie four, when he comes in and the whole Great Hall, like, storms, and it's like, you know, big plot point. No. So, he gets his, his nickname, Mad-Eye, from that large, disgusting, well, not disgusting, sort of disgusting, uh, eye that he's got. That's where cool, did man. he get that eye from? Probably the ministry. Where did he the get ministry. it from? Because, you know, when he when he got his eye gouged out or whatever, how he lost it's it. Standard, it's standard issue. Oh, no, man. It's probably that when he got, after he got his eye gouged out that the ministry said this is a perfect opportunity to give him something that can help him advance in his profession. So they gave him the eye that can see through things. Matt, Andrew, wouldn't it be cool to have that eye, though? If you're a perv, then yeah. Maybe. <laughs> oh, okay. I wasn't talking. <laughs> I don't know. You'd be seeing too much. I'd be seeing, seeing I'd be seeing things I would not want to see. I guess Ben's suggesting it's some kind of standard issue eye, like James Bond has his Aston Martin and, you know, and then Moody has his standard eye, but I, I think it was something that Moody would have pursued more to get um, in replace of his eye than the ministry wouldn't be like, here, have this. I mean, as far as we know, his name is Mad Eye Moody. I mean, you don't see, you don't hear about this Mad Eye Joey, you know, coming out of South Bronx or anything like that. There's no Mad Eye Joey who, who has an eye. I, I think Moody is like the only one who's got to have this eye. So I think it's very unlikely that it's, you know, standard issue or anything like that, anything of the sort. I think it's very unique, and I think Moody... Yeah, I never, I never said it was standard issue, so I don't know where you came up with well, that Well, I mean, you're saying that the ministry supplied it to him, and, and unless somebody really cared about, you know, hey, how can we enhance this guy, I, I just see it as something that Moody would have pursued getting for himself as a replacement to better enhance, I, you know, to help him catch people. Well, I think what... Ben is kind of saying is that it's possible that the eyes could be kind of like time turners, for instance. Like, not everyone can have a time turner. You have to be really special or have a really specific reason to have one. So, seeing as Moody is one of the best aurors that the ministry's ever had, it's entirely possible that they could have provided him with that. I agree. Are there additional eyes out there, though? Like, should they be giving these to more people who... I, I, have a cl- I have a, I have a whole closet full, actually. Well, how many orders get their <laughs> eyes popped out? Well, it might be a nice upgrade. <laughs> I mean, seriously, think about it. Oh, you're such a nerd. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, Andrew mentioned before that Mad-Eye Moody made an appearance in Goblet of Fire, and we all know it really wasn't him, but 
for a minute, I guess, pretend that he was because Barty Crouch Jr. tells Harry that he would have made a good or. So what does it mean that Harry's children, excuse me, chosen career path is one that was suggested by a Death Eater? Would the real Moody have suggested mm-hmm. the same thing? You know, I had a couple of thoughts on that. I was thinking that maybe Crouch Jr. saw Harry as a threat if he were to be an or. So maybe he was hoping that telling Harry he would be good at something like that would kind of fuel his saving people thing and, you know, have him die in a situation where he's trying to be a hero or something along those lines. Well, well, don't you think um, he was going to be found out anyway or he knew he would be found out eventually? Barty? So, I mean, wouldn't that opinion go disrespected? Could it have been that Barty was just trying to get brownie points out of Harry by encouraging him? Yeah, definitely. He could have definitely been trying to gain his trust. Right. So, I mean, I think I think looking back on that, we should just take that with a grain of salt. No, you know what I would say if I was asked this question about Barty Crouch Jr.? I would say that this... <laughs> This was um, a moment where, if circumstances would have been different, Barty Crouch Jr. was really actually pretty much telling the truth and recommending an honest profession. Um, I think there's always kind of a hope, not necessarily hope, in every villain's eyes, but a chance that uh, they will meet their enemy, that the hero will come and meet them. And the villain's... You know, mindset is always, oh, wait till the hero comes and tries to rescue his damsel because I'll just show him off and and destroy him. You know, you see it in all these movies, in Batman especially. Like, say, Batman Forever, the Riddler is waiting for Batman to come and rescue Nicole Kidman. It's the mindset. So now, how this relates to Harry Potter is, in this scene, I think Barty Crouch Jr. was truly being truthful to Harry. And he said, I think you'd make... You know, a, a good R. You should try R-ing, and I think by saying that he was either putting him on to discover what the plot was of the book, or just honestly having a nice moment where he said, "You know, I think you'd make a decent R." I mean, it doesn't necessarily take. I think he's. I don't think he's ignorant enough that he wouldn't, you know, recognize talent in a field against defense against the star. I mean, Harry stopped Voldemort as a child before he knew anything. I think it's clear that Harry's good at R-ring, and I'm surprised nobody else recommended it to him before uh, Barty Crouch did. Well said, mate. Well said. So when we meet Moody again in Order of the Phoenix, he seems even more overcautious than he was before. Well, it, may, it makes sense, though. Is this a function of the events of Goblet of Fire or the War? Well, of course, because... He's going to be more cautious because you know, we are we all know that he was being perceived as a nut before, and now that he was locked up in a box for nine months, he's probably a little bit on edge. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, you spend your life in a cellar yeah. for nine months. <laughs> I have to agree with that. The irony of this, I just realized this. Um, if you think about it, Barty Crouch Sr. kept Barty Crouch Jr. in his basement, literally. Uh, you know, under the invisibility cloak or whatever, and under the Imperius curse. And so... It's kind of fitting or, or funny that, um, in an ironic sort of way, of course, that, uh, you know, Barty Crouch Jr., when he escapes, he locks somebody up in, in you know, a chest, which closely resembles a giant hole in the, in the ground or wherever you set the chest, and it's kind of like a basement. So, you know, it's kind of a, a parallel or a similarity, whereas Barty Crouch Sr., you know, locked his son up in a, in, the, in a basement that Barty Crouch Jr. should escape and then hide the real Moody and some kind of thing like that, too, while he continues his life. 
and seeks his revenge. It kind of shows that father and son aren't too too different or draws that parallel. It could be a function of both things, you know, both what happened in Goblet of Fire and also now it's definite that Voldemort is back at this time, so Moody has even more reason to be overcautious than he was in previous books. What do you think he was like in the first war? We know for a fact that he hadn't, well, maybe we don't know, but it would make sense that he hadn't been as injured as he is right now. Um, well, actually, we know that from the pensive scene in Goblet of Fire when we actually see him normally. So, you know, what did you what do you guys think he was like back then? I bet he was at the top of his game. That's how I'd, that's what I'd say to describe it. I think that he was probably always kind of paranoid, but um, I think that that definitely increased due to what happened in Goblet of Fire and Voldemort's return. I also think he was probably a little more laid back because in the pensive scene, he was saying stuff like, you know, this Death Eater took, you know, a chunk of me with him and all this other stuff. So I think he was probably a little more, I guess, just laid back about everything and not, not quite so obsessed with thinking that people were trying to send him, you know, dark and cursed objects and the like. But he seems to enjoy it in a way, too, when he says stuff like, this Death Eater took a piece of me. I was just going to say that. In a weird sort of way. Yeah, I think he he did, definitely. But I think that the paranoia has definitely gone up a few notches. I think people overplay his paranoia. Um, I mean, like Micah just said, when he says... You know, that Death Eater took a piece away from me with him. You know, I think that's probably my favorite Moody trait, is that he can talk about that and say, you know, oh, this Death Eater was was a nasty bugger. And, and you know, in the movie, especially even with, you know, Brendan Gleeson, even though it's Barty Crouch Jr. saying it, you know, I could tell you things about your father that w- would make your ears turn or whatever he says. You know, that whole thing is, is, a, is a Moody character trait that I really enjoy, where he can truly... I don't know, use his knowledge to joke about his work, but also, you know, take it so seriously. He he attacks his job with knowledge and precision and uh, personality, with stamina, with spunk. I think I think Moody is is spunky. He should be called <laughs> Mad Eye Spunky. <laughs> well, I agree that he's definitely very open about his job, but you've got to admit, the guy's pretty paranoid. I mean, in the opening chapters of Order of the Phoenix, he's telling Harry not to stick his wand in his back pocket because <laughs> he said he would blow his um his butt off. So <laughs> It'll blow his buttocks off. <laughs> so, I mean, he's got to be a little out I there. I think, you know what, I don't think that's paranoid. I think... You know what? Maybe he had a brother who was into uh, sticking his wand in his back pocket, and it, he blew his buttocks off. You never know. You know, it's just a, it's a cautionary tale. It's like don't uh, don't spread your you know don't do that smile thing where you pull your cheeks apart because it'll get stuck like that. You know who does that? But parents will still tell that to a kid for no reason. They know it won't do anything, but. You know why would they, why would they say that? Uh, I think he enjoys just bragging about it in a way. You know, so it's it's just it's just that kind of thing. So what do we think his role in the order was the first time around? I mean, he probably played a pretty important role leadership wise. Did he? Well, I mean, is there much evidence of that? I would think he would definitely be a huge asset just because of the fact that he is one of the top orders. We don't know necessarily what he did, but I'm sure that he did a lot of spying. Right, but was he a leader? 
Oh, is he a follower? He's missing a lot. He's missing an eye, a leg, part of his nose. Chicks dig scars, man. Chicks dig scars. <laughs> so in Order of the Phoenix, Harry gets shown the picture of the Old Order by Moody, and he seems really dependent on showing him this, this photo. And in particular, he shows a picture of Peter Predigrew sort of embracing Harry's parents. Now, do you think he knew that Pettigrew was the traitor that he was at that time? Because it would seem to me that he wouldn't be so intent on showing him this picture if he had known that. Um, I don't really think he knew, but I don't think it would make a difference if he did. Because if he was worried about upsetting Harry or kind of weirding him out, showing him a picture of his dead parents, like doing the thing that they did that pretty much caused their death would, you know, kind of freak Harry out. So I don't think that he would refrain from showing him the picture just because Pettigrew was in it. But I really don't think he did know. Or no, well, no, Sirius was in the order. So there would have to be some explanation for why Sirius was all of a sudden back. Well, you guys have to remember also, Dumbledore himself gave evidence that Sirius was guilty. So, you know, I mean, I don't think it was possible that anybody would have implicated Peter in the plot. And that was just the genius of it was that everybody was so, I mean, everybody, not just the Marauders, kind of disregarded him a little bit, kind of didn't appreciate him. And, and you know, that was everybody, including McGonagall herself. I mean, even if they didn't openly taunt him, nobody expected him to really do anything to, to uh, you know, climactic. So when he, you know, went to the other side, when he disappeared, nobody knew what hit him. And they would just as soon suspect Sirius because Sirius is more openly capable of doing something sporadic and rational, as we're seeing. You know, or rash, I mean, not rationale. There's a difference. But that's that's the deal. So... I don't think Moody would have would have known at the time, or else he would have stopped it, or tried to, or at least said something at Sirius's, you know, his court date. Well, no, I don't think that was really the question. I think we're talking about did Moody know that Pettigrew was the traitor at the time he showed Harry the picture? Oh, like in like in book five? Yeah, I think he would have to, wouldn't he? Because Sirius was back, you know, living at Order headquarters, and I would think everyone would kind of oh, want to yeah. know why he was all of a sudden. <laughs> in everyone's good graces. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're kind of in everyone's... Yeah, um, no, I think that's definite. I think one of the th- one of the good things about Dumbledore, even though he holds a lot of crap back from everybody, you got to kind of respect him for it, but he does, he will openly tell people what they need to know. And there's a lot of comparisons with people um, just looking at Aslan from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not nearly as open with people as Dumbledore is. We should actually be very grateful. But still, both characters will tell people what they need to know. Both characters will tell people what they need to know. And so Dumbledore will tell Moody. I mean, I, I think especially since they're at Sirius's house, they, they need to know why he's walking around. I mean, yes, of course. I'm sorry. I completely misunderstood the question. Yeah, I think I did it first too. Micah, did we no, get no, that right? Or right. Did I sort of... In the end, yeah. Screw I mean, because okay, yeah, I think Dumbledore definitely would have. He he had to tell everybody in the order that Sirius was. I I I think there's no mistaking. Even at the end of book three, with the dog in the infirmary or w- whatever that happens, I think that that happened right where the there was a book four something where the Sirius. Yeah, they didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Molly didn't know that Sirius was Sirius the dog, and still Sirius was there in the infirmary. So he told he tells them what they need to know. I think it's. I think they all know the story now. 
If, if anything, it was just to teach him more about the Order and maybe even to make him realize how close the friendship actually was. Yeah, and maybe it was just, you know, his attempt to try and do something nice for Harry. Yeah. He didn't realize that maybe at first that Pettigrew was even going to be there. A bigger question would be is where was Moody in Half-Blood Prince? Is he, like, missing an arm now? Is he missing half his head? <laughs> I didn't notice that Moody was out of book six. I'm sorry. Was he not in the like ending battle at all? Uh, no, he wasn't, actually. He wasn't that, there. That seems incredibly weird. Yeah. Maybe we should be getting a little I mean, it seems now. like... Yeah, it, I think we should be worried because... Well, Dumbledore mentioned all those old Aurors, and, and he mentioned all of them, and if Dumbledore knows them, Moody would know them, you know, especially... They, they all broke out of Azkaban. In fact, these are the Death Eaters that Moody put away. So why would he not want to jump at the challenge to put them back in Azkaban or face them at all? I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. You know what would be a great way to end this series is that it would be where every character, I guess not the minor one so much, but, you know, like Mad-Eye and Pettigrew. Well, maybe not so much Pettigrew either. Well, yeah, Pettigrew because he owes the debt. Everyone comes back and plays some sort of little role in helping Harry. I just think that'd be so cool to see everyone one last time. Everyone. I thought that too. I think I would agree. Yeah. Um, I can't really remember. Was Moody at Dumbledore's funeral? He better have been. Because it Someone would. Because we know something's wrong if he wasn't there. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they don't mention they don't. She doesn't mention everyone at the funeral. Yeah, well, so. I mean, she talked about Madame Maxime. She took the time to mention Umbridge. Yeah. Oh no, wait! It says Mad Eye Moody was there. Never mind. Okay. We would have gotten so many emails on that one. <laughs> I know. That's why we need that monkey. Yeah. People, people, people are ready to hit the send button. <laughs> you can stop. You can stop. Hit the little X. Close the email. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. We try really hard, you guys. We really do. You don't understand how many people just hit their head up against the screen and are now going yeah. to the hospital. So one appearance. No, watch. We're going to get tons of emails that are like, what are you talking about? Moody did this huge thing and all this other stuff. Page 334. It was right there. You know what, though? No, but we live for that kind of crap, so don't, you know... Well, I guess that lays to rest any thoughts that he could have been in some really bad... Really bad shape. So, like I was just saying earlier, how could he help in Book 7? I'll tell you how he can help. He can use that magical eye and see through walls for horcruxes. I'm sure they're just hiding behind all the walls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's going to be in a really obvious spot. Nobody's going to even think to look there. Someone sent an email, um, I hate to jump on this Horcrux discussion. It always goes back to the Horcruxes. Um, someone sent an email, I guess one or two weeks ago, saying that maybe the final Horcrux is in Dumbledore's office, because who would think to look there, since it's, such, it's in a such obvious place. I, I think Dumbledore would think to look Why there. Why would Voldemort put it Because there? nobody would think to look there. <laughs> okay, well, guys... Would the, Dumbledore even think to look there? Although, right, then it, raises the question, how would Voldemort have gotten into the Dumbledore's office? Andrew, I'm... Well, I'm gonna... I can answer that. 
Um, I'm going to shoot down the theory, but I can answer that. There is, when Voldemort comes back to Dumbledore's office asking for the defense against the Dark Arts post or whatever, there's a point where Voldemort twitches his wand, or at least grasps for his wand, as if to battle Dumbledore. Now, some people who are uh, shippers of the theory that the Sorting Hat is a Horcrux um, argue that this moment, while perceived by Harry to be a potential attack, could have rather been uh, Voldemort twitching his wand and aiming at something within the office, in this case the sorting hat, and turning that into a horcrux. The reason I'm against this is because the horcrux ceremony is supposed to be a little bit more uh, complicated than that. Not to say that Voldemort couldn't dull it down a little bit and, you know, make it into a, a, a wand click or whatever, but also I think... Um, that Dumbledore would be the first person to think to look there. I mean, it's it's at the sa- it's under Dumbledore's nose in a way that it would be completely brilliant if it happened. But at the same time, I think it's too under Dumbledore's nose. And Dumbledore figured out the whole freaking you have to like cut your hand and and spray blood on the wall and part the thing and go across the. But he figured out this whole thing to get the other Horcrux, and he somehow destroyed the other Horcrux, I think it'd be very, very unlikely in all his life of living in that office as headmaster for 50-so years if he didn't notice anything that had a particular magical quality about it that would indicate a Horcrux. I think, I don't think anybody is that, that good uh, to fool Dumbledore if it were right in his office, especially if it were the sort Yeah, of I agree with that. Well said. No, I think... Yeah, I think that was really well said. I mean, and then, of course, which raises the question, well, how do you make a Horcrux? And, oh, how we'd love to figure these things out. Well, that'd be... But going back to going, going back to Moody, I wanted to say, and I think it's cool that I brought up the, the blood spraying thing, because now that, now that Dumbledore's gone, sob, cry, you know, uh, kick, chair, hurt, toe, yelp, I... Uh, I think Moody is probably the second best bet uh, for helping Harry locate uh, Horcrux. Do you guys agree with that? Like, as far as... I mean, Moody's an R, so I'd like to think that he'd be more uh, keen to people and and bad wizards as opposed to finding extraordinary magic. But at the same time, Moody has been in long. You know, he's put his time in for the service, and he would probably be able to... I think... He still would be probably the second best to detect some kind of magic that would be a Horcrux. At least in destroying a Horcrux, he should be able to help. And I think he could really prove to be Harry's sec- you know, next best option while talking about Moody. I think at the very least, he would definitely know where to look. But at the same time, I don't want to see anyone help Harry too much. Because this is where Harry's supposed to, you know, grow up and come into his own, and this is his battle. And I don't know, I don't want to see someone helping him kill Voldemort or helping him defeat a Horcrux. Well, okay, but I don't want to see Harry uh, going into every single building that Voldemort was in. I mean, it'd be cool to write about, of course, you know, like an odyssey of everywhere Voldemort went. And, you know, sniffing the walls and hoping, I mean, what we've seen in book seven, or sorry, in book six, was that not only is Dumbledore a lot more powerful than Harry will ever be, but he speaks other languages and other... He has other ways of detecting extremely dark magic that haven't even been referenced or foreshadowed in the books. I mean, Dumbledore is just up there, completely out there, beyond anything. And 
it's not like one of those things where Harry will have to grow up and one day become that. I don't think anybody can become Dumbledore. So he will need to ex- accept help in, in, in some form. And while I agree he should look you know, for the Horcruxes, while, while his journey should be his own, I wouldn't mind him accepting help from Moody because I really don't see it as realistic that he's going to go to Godric's Hollow, where he shouldn't even know where that is, by the way, or shouldn't even know why he's going there, and find something that should help him do something. I think he needs to rely on people, and I think Moody is definitely one of the people I want to see helping him. About that, you, um, you're talking about how Harry needs to rely on other people. Was I the only one? I hate to sort of branch off topic here, but I think this is staying on topic. You know when Imposter Moody in Goblet of Fire is helping out Harry through the three tasks, was I the only one that felt at the end it sort of made made you, like, how you thought how Harry was such a great wizard and all these things because he's able to, to succeed to the tasks, that it sort of devalued it to an extent that since we knew that he had all that help from Imposter Moody. I think she way? balanced it well enough. I didn't feel disappointed with it. Um, I didn't feel disappointed with it, if that's what you're saying, but I definitely felt like it gave Harry a lot to live up to. It sort of forged his future path and the kind of things that he would need to learn and what kind of person he would need to become to be able to succeed on his own. Yeah, I think it also, it's, it's, I think it's the philosophy that Dumbledore actually probably went to. Uh, and, and, you know, used in his five fir- first five years of, com- of uh, not telling Harry everything um, was that if you, te- you know, if you help him, they will either become reliant on help or the, the second option, which is, uh, you know, be more inclined not to, uh, you know, be able to find help on there. I think in this case, Moody's helping him kind of hindered Harry's ability to... Harry doesn't expect to be helped, but at the same time, I don't know that he could have developed, you know, other abilities that would have allowed him to find more things out on his own if Moody hadn't been helping him. And I think that's that's one of the key reasons why Dumbledore didn't help him too terribly much throughout the, uh, you know, book. Apart from the fact that Dumbledore wants people to live their own life and make their own choices, Harry also kind of had to figure things out for himself because... Dumbledore figured he wasn't going to be there when Harry went for the the you know the the end line, and so it only makes sense that he would give Harry this you know Hogwarts as his playing ground, but to live his life you know without too much help. I think that's why Dumbledore didn't help Harry more throughout the books. I just think it's it's part of the plot. Like Moody is or Imposter Moody is the reason why he's there in the first place, so he has to help him along. Otherwise, his plan goes for nothing. It's time to wrap this up. Let's finish things off by uh, explaining our views on Brendan Gleeson. I have to say, I was very impressed by him. He exceeded my expectations. He was both funny, uh, witty, and he was very... He portrayed the character very strongly. He always had this angry tone in his voice. I really liked See, him. Andrew gives Mr. Brendan Gleeson and exceeds expectations. I think that he did it a... Well, what's another ranking outstanding job. I really appreciated his portrayal. I thought he was absolutely excellent, and I'm really, really looking forward to seeing him in Order of the Phoenix. I just thought he was a real character, and I really enjoyed watching him. Me as well. He he was definitely one of the strong points. I, I don't know. I don't want to say strong points of Goblet of Fire, because it did so many. I just really liked the movie. But he definitely added a color that was essential to the uh, palette, if, you, if I'll use that 
compete. Sorry, the art show was this week. I'm thinking in you know art terms. All right. So as I said earlier, uh, we'll be doing two of these a month. So that means that next week we will be doing a miscellaneous discussion. Uh, we will give you that topic next week. We want to keep it a surprise. <laughs> All right, now it's time for this week's chapter by chapter. This week we will be discussing chapter 12 of Sorcerer's Stone titled The Mirror of Erised. And you know what, guys? I was looking at this for a while, and, you know, the word Erised is in here, this chapter specifically, a lot of times. And I realized that spell Erised backwards, you know, it says desire. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. you are. And you know how. The top of the mirror backwards says, I show Laura, not your face, but your heart's everyone desire. Everyone knows that already, okay? <laughs> I'm pointing out a new theory. <laughs> what is this? What is this? Come on. What, what's up? What about the in- inscription? It said, I show, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. It says it backwards. I remember when I, when I figured that out on my own. When I was looking at it on my own, I figured it out. I freaked I out. Know. I, was, I thought, I, I, thought <laughs> like, I broke open the series right there. I know. Started punching the air. I, like, I know. Yes! <laughs> yes! I got it! Uh, it opens up. Christmas was coming. One morning in mid-December, Hogwarts woke to find itself covered in several feet of snow. The lake froze solid, and the Weasley twins were punished for bewitching several snowballs so that they followed Quirrell around. And this seems funny, because... I believe he visits the Mer people and they uh, sleep with him and keep him warm. All right, no, the be- okay. So the Weasley twins were uh, punished f- for bewitching snowballs and throwing it against Quirrell. All right, who do you think they were punished by? Like, it doesn't really say that. It just says they were punished for throwing snowballs at Quirrell's turban. Well, more importantly, it's just funny that he they're throwing them. It, Joe specifically points out at on the back of his turban. Yeah, which is where Voldemort is. I mean, page 200, Harry's presence. He starts opening his presence and he gets a wooden flute from Haggard, which is kind of like saying, I don't want you to break the rules, but here you go anyway. But, listen, his second present he opens up is from the Dursleys. And you all know how we talked about the Dursleys being, you know, mean on purpose and stuff like that, right? And, and making a point to, to tick him off during Christmas time. You know, we all talked about that. The, there's a message attached to the Dursleys note which says, We received your message and enclose your Christmas present from er- Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia. Now, Harry wouldn't have, you know, asked, what does it mean we receive your message? Because Harry wouldn't have wouldn't have sent an owl to them asking for a Christmas present. Dumbledore probably did. Dumbledore. He said, by the way, Christmas is coming up and it would be very polite to send your nephews something. But it's interesting because... Or I'll blow your heads off. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or I'll blow your heads off. <laughs> I can see Dumbledore as a, as a mobster in the mafia. First of all, I find this message really generic. Almost as if it wasn't from the Dursleys. We receive your message and enclose your Christmas play- present. I, I, who, who writes enclosed? Like... The British people. British people. Who would yeah, write that? Or, or, would you expect that from your aunt? Hi, I've enclosed... No, your- I think that's just more common over there. I don't know. It sounds really generic and almost fake, but not just that. Um, as to how they would have known he was staying or why they sent the gift there, wouldn't it have made sense that don't they have to get like some sort of permission to stay back at the school? Um, yeah, but they also went out of their way to to use the owl 
you know, they, they, they went out of their way to get an owl to send him. Or maybe, you know, I, it didn't say Hedwig, like, went and pecked them on the fingers until they gave him a gift. I think she does that later, doesn't she? Or something like that um, to people. But, yeah, it's nothing like that. So I don't even know. I don't know. It, it just seemed interesting that they said we received her message and then gave him crap anyway. But I just figured it was like, you know, Micah said that Dumbledore would just blow them up if they didn't. Yeah, you know, give him a present. This so. seems too g- generic to well, me. Yeah, they don't like him, and they don't want to write him a warm Christmas greeting, so they're just very straightforward. Soon, Harry opens his presents and comes across a long, billowing gray thing. However, there's a note that falls out of it once Harry puts it on, and it says, Your father left this in my possession before he died. It is time it was returned to you. Use it well. We do know later that this uh, note is actually from Albus Dumbledore. My question is, guys, do we know uh, why James Potter left the invisibility cloak in Dumbledore's possession before they uh, went into hiding, as later described? Or wouldn't it make sense that, in addition to the Fidelia's charm, they would keep the uh, invisibility cloak with them if they were caught? Or just what, what exactly would Dumbledore, you know, what would the purpose be of giving Dumbledore this invisibility cloak if, additionally... He can get invisible without using a cloak. Well, because he probably, you know, he intended to have him give it to Harry because it's a family heirloom, and he wanted him to keep the tradition, keep passing it on, because he knew that his own life was in jeopardy, so he saw fit that he needs somebody to make sure the legacy continues. I don't think Harry has any guarantee that, you know, that Harry... Right, but... Sorry, James didn't have any... In the event that Harry lived... so, 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 here, I'm going to give you this invisibility cloak, which could probably help me hide from Voldemort and help my family, but give it to my son if by chance my wife dies to save him and, and, you know, we're both dead, but he's not. It makes no sense to me. Like, Dumbledore doesn't even need the cloak. Why didn't, why didn't James okay, keep it? though, think about it. You, you're, you're, Harry, you're Harry's dad. Are you really going to think about your, your kid dying? <laughs> exactly. No parent is going to make plans for if their child dies, they're going to make plans for if their child lives. I mean, I don't think they'll even consider the option of him dying, really. No, they wouldn't, but at the same time, they have to consider them... Because I think that they could trust Dumbledore yeah, if, to give it to him. Yeah, if Harry. you're going to give it to anyone, who who else would you trust? But I'm saying... That, no, Dumbledore, but, and you're right, but I'm saying there's no guarantee... Dude, if, if Voldemort's after your life, why would he not kill Harry? And in fact, why why should there not be a problem... With killing Harry, there shouldn't be. So, if James was fearing for him and his his wife's life, they should have feared for their sons too. They should have considered that Voldemort wasn't going to spare their son because he wasn't going to, and and he almost didn't. Maybe he thought it would be of use to Dumbledore at some point. You know, to Harry, if he wanted to give it to Harry, he would have put it in the vault at Gringotts with the possession. That's what I think. I'm sure that the Potters were completely aware of the possibility that Harry might die as well, but I think that it was sort of just kind of exhibiting James's personality and saying that he wanted Harry to have the cloak at Hogwarts. He wanted Harry to be able to have that so that he could sneak around and do all these other things. And how ironic is it that the person who gives this cloak to Harry is the headmaster of the school? I think that's very ironic, but also I think you're... I think that's exactly it. I think you've probably hit the nail on the head. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Didn't Harry, during the Mirror of Erised chapter think something, or later in one of the books, kind of wonder if Dumbledore could see through the invisibility cloak. So, if Dumbledore can, I'm pretty sure Voldemort could. Uh, That's a good point. So, I'm not sure how much of a help an invisibility cloak would be. Well, 
never mind two grown well, people. Well, no, 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 no. Yeah, that, I mean, we already saw that in book five, I think, Ron was getting well, too tall. Well, you can expand things, too. There, There is the charm to, you know, do that. But I think that is the question. Does that mean if Dumbledore can see through it? I, I don't know. I, I've heard it been speculated that Dumbledore is actually part... A not entirely human, part other creature, part something else that allows him to become invisible naturally, in addition, you know, which has nothing to do with his magical finesse. So, if it, if that were the case, then it doesn't necessarily mean that Voldemort would be able to see through invisibility cloaks. Alright, next, next question. Well, what I thought was really interesting was last time we were talking about how Snape seemed to trust Felch with what was going on with Fluffy and knowing that he'd been in the third floor corridor. And here, after Filch hears Harry in the restricted section of the library, he Snape comes up in the corridor and he says, you asked me to come directly to you, Professor, if anyone was wandering around at night. Now, do we know if Filch knows that Snape is on to quarrel? Or did Filch just generally think Snape was interested in catching any students? Or does Filch even really have any idea about the Sorcerer's Stone or that there's something being guarded? I asked this question, too, because Snape clears... Um, Snape is confiding in Filch about his leg and about Fluffy. I think it makes sense that Snape would have told him that he was suspecting somebody was after uh, the Sorcerer's Stone. And I think it's likely that Snape would ask Filch and would confide in him. Uh, as we see here, he did. He said, you know, come to me if anybody's wandering about. You know, and he said specifically on Christmas, or at least it seemed like it was specifically that night. And so Snape is pretty much ahead of the game and suspecting that Quirrell or somebody's going to be, you know, trying to either get around Fluffy or trying to be just out of bed, you know, and up in the corridors making noise. I just think, yeah, I think this is the case where Snape said, if anybody wanders around, you know, come to me. And I think that they have some kind of eerie understanding between each other that we didn't really notice before in the books, and maybe that's one of the good things that we did, you know, this whole chapter by chapter, that we're noticing this affiliacy, if that's the word, between Snape and Felch. Let's move on to the part where Harry uh, first runs into the mirror. I just think it's really cool how when he walks in, the mirror's just there. It's, it's just standing there. There's like no... It's not hidden. There's no special thing you have to do to get access to it. It's just there. Which shows that people... I don't think many people would expect that to have the ability that it did. And maybe that was one reason that it was just sitting out and Dumbledore thought it was in a semi-secure place. Well, I don't know. You don't know... It's interesting because if you realize that Dumbledore was monitoring Harry inside this room while he watched himself in the mirror at least two out of the three times or a couple times throughout the chapter as Harry returns, you begin to think that maybe it wasn't necessarily just in this room. Harry conveniently found the only open room. You know, you know the door was open, and, and you know, he happened to stumble into it. I think it's more of a case where it's possible that during the day and every single other night since the beginning of term, the door was locked. And I think that it's possible that Dumbledore could have guided Harry into that room, and maybe the door wasn't always unlocked, and maybe it always wasn't that easy to get to. Yeah, right here. Or maybe Quirrell was examining well, well, it. Listen to this first, page 207, U.S. edition. But propped against the wall facing him was something that didn't look as if it belonged there, something that looked as if someone had just put it there to keep it out of the way. To me, and this is this was the reason I brought it up, it just seems like that's the, exactly the reason it was put it, it was put there. Dumbledore didn't think anyone would mess with it. Cause it was just well, maybe it was 
a temporary place because the next thing I was going to bring up was that Dumbledore told Harry that the Mirror of Erised was being moved to a new home. And I think that this probably means it had been in a more secure location previously, but that it was moved to that classroom for maybe a couple of days. And um, what I wanted to bring up about that was why are they still taking precautions to protect the stone at this point? Why didn't they do this all before school? Why are they doing it now? Does this mean that they thought the protections they had prior to school starting were enough? And then he finds, and then Dumbledore maybe finds out that someone is snooping and that he wants to put more protections on it. And is Snape maybe spying for him? Well, I think they just, there was no, there was no threat before school had started that someone was going to try to get the Sorcerer's Stone. So by the time, uh, we still don't, we talked about this earlier on a previous show, uh, why, how this threat came about, but. Well, why would there be no threat for it being stolen if they were moving I'm it saying to before they moved it to Hogwarts, they didn't know there was a threat. That it could have been stolen. I don't know. Dumbledore seems to do these things right in time, you know, just in time with things. He had Hagrid retrieve the uh, Sorcerer's Stone from Gringotts right before Gringotts was was uh, was broken into. I just think it's an accurate question to ask what was protecting the stone. How did you get to the stone before the Mirror of Air said? You know, we know we know the Mirror of Air said to be the final straw where you can only ever get the stone if you want to get it but not use it or whatever, you know, however that works. I think it's an accurate question to ask how did you get it before? You know, did you pass Snape's potion thing and then all of a sudden it was in, in a, uh, you know, on a, on a, on a uh, little, little post like uh, Indiana Jones and, you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Temple of Doom or whatever it is, where he's, he's just sitting there on a podium where he can just pick it up. I mean, what exactly was the final step? All right, so moving along. Well, Dumbledore says to Harry, right, right when he's telling Harry that, um, right when he's telling Harry that, uh, you know, it's going to be moved to a new location, he says that men have wasted away before the mirror. Uh, who do you suppose he means? Because obviously Dumbledore knows the mirror's history, but he says men have wasted away before it. Where exactly would it have been, and and what men do you suppose would have wasted away before it? I don't know if he's actually talking about someone literally wasting away, or if he just means that men have just sat in front of that mirror for a long time trying to find themselves or figure out the secret of, about it. I don't know if what he what he actually means. I don't know if there's actually a person who sat in front of the mirror and sat there until he died or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think what he's saying is people have gone crazy looking into that mirror and saying, oh my gosh, that's what I I want and it's right in front of me. I can't ever leave this. Yeah, that's the impression I got. That's what I desire the most. Anyway, um, I, I picked up on the fact that Dumbledore put a pretty strong emphasis on the possibility that Harry might run across the mirror again. And... As we know, at the end of Sorcerer's Stone, um, Harry says that he thought Dumbledore wanted to give him the chance to stand up to Voldemort. And I just thought that was an interesting little bit of foreshadowing. So that he would kind of know how to use the mirror and know to be cautious of it when he did run across it again. I think Dumbledore is very um, seclusive with his knowledge, like... Not just in the sense that he doesn't tell anybody but Harry until, you know, six years later you know, until it's too late, but also in the way that I think, 
I think Dumbledore did know, and I think Harry was right in assuming that that Dumbledore figured that Harry would battle Voldemort in the end, and definitely saying that Harry would possibly, uh, you know, uh, have a fighting chance at getting the Sorcerer's Stone. I just think it's a matter of you're right, and Dumbledore put emphasis there because I guess he figured that he was he himself was going to be fooled by a silly owl or something like that, and Harry would have to go in and save the day without him. Pretty much, yeah, you're right. He had just expected that, and that's why he said it. Okay, final question, guys. Uh, Dumbledore. What does Dumbledore see in the Mirror of Erised? Harry asks him this question, and he says socks, and you know that's a lie, but Harry doesn't really mind it because... You know, he figures it's a really personal question. Dumbledore is an old guy. He's seen it all. He's been through it all. I think the only thing that he could ask for is a peaceful world. What he desires is a peaceful world. I agree. I would have to agree with that. So that does wrap up this week's chapter by chapter. Next week we will be discussing chapter 13 of Nicholas, uh, titled Nicholas Fulmel. So now moving on to this week's Dueling Club. This one comes from Luke 15 of London. He writes, hi guys, love the show. Everyone starts it out the same way. We appreciate those love the shows, but... Someone write in and say, hey guys, hate the show. Hate the show, yeah. How how about you say, hi guys, and and Laura. Hi guys. That's another thing. Everyone always says, hi guys, and Laura. (laughs) (laughs) I always think that's funny. (laughs) It would win between a hippogriff and a thestral. Would the hippogriff even see it? Are we left with another, does the invisibility cloak work on animal situation... Thanks. I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily an invisibility cloak type thing. Well, I guess it is because we don't know if if a hippogriff would have to see some another hippogriff die in order to see the thestrals. I think that it probably just applies to hu- humans. Uh, actually, guys, I think I I wouldn't be entirely incorrect in in adding that most animals probably have a better in touch with nature than humans do in the way that they have instinct and they can't think for themselves. And so it makes sense to me that hippogriffs could indeed see thestrals. Honestly, I can't... I know I just said I agreed with you, but it's mostly... I agree with the point you were making. I think it's possible that because hippogriffs are more in tune with nature than a human would be, that it's possible they could see a thestral. But I'm just not sure if invisibility can just be exclusive to humans, you know? I mean, I guess it could have something to do with the fact that, you know, say, dogs have better senses of smell and such than humans do, but I just really don't know. And I think that if you take the basics, the fact that both can fly and both have, you know, defensive mechanisms, but the one thing that the Thestral would have over a hippogriff, theoretically, is that it is invisible, then I think a Thestral would win. All right, so that wraps up this week's Dueling Club. Uh, I think we're the group is split down the middle here. Let's move over to this week's general voicemail questions. Hi, it's Chloe. I'm 15, and I'm from New York City. So I had a thought. I wanted to know what you guys think about. What do you think Dumbledore's book, Boggart, is? Any thoughts? Love to hear you guys have to say, and I love the show. Bye. Well, hold on. First of all, let's refer to the... Uh, interview with J.K. Rowling, uh, conducted by Emerson, where Emerson actually asked that question. Not Melissa. Oh, yeah. Just Emerson. <laughs> <laughs> so technically, this is a bug on that exclusive. <laughs> I think that's what Mike is trying to say. Emerson asked Joe, what would Dumbledore's bogger be? And she says, I can't answer that. 
Uh, but for theories, you should read book six again. There you go. <laughs> so See, I think it's students. I think it's killing students. I'm sorry, Mike. I didn't mean to cut you off. But Death of students? Yeah, I think it's death of students or anything like that. Because if, you know, whenever he was, he drank the potion. Exactly. And he was saying, don't hurt them, yeah. don't kill them. I think that's probably where she meant when she said, look in book six. I hope it isn't, but I think. Yeah, I, th- I think if you go back to that whole potion scene, I think, you know, we talked about what it meant. But I think it could even have been foreshadowing what was going to happen um, at Hogwarts. You know, maybe he was seeing the school being under attack. I think that's his greatest fear because I think what he values most in life is the school and the children in it. So now, where, whereas a boggart, a boggart can't represent a concept as much, but do you think, in the case of Molly Weasley seeing all her sons lying dead on the floor, do you think that Dumbledore would see Harry on the floor dead? I think he would see a bunch of students lying on the floor. I don't know about just Harry. Well, Harry is an example. Yeah, I, think I don't it's think his greatest. In general. I don't think his greatest fear is Harry's death. His greatest fear could be making a mistake. I mean, he seems. And being responsible for students dying. Yeah, I think. I think. I think so too. I think Dumbledore. I think his greatest fear would probably be more along the lines of not telling Harry everything he could. You know, you notice throughout the years that Dumbledore kind of wanted to tell Harry everything, but then never did. And he really does blame himself pretty hard in book six. Hey, Mugglecast, guys. My name's Josiah Spray, and I'm from Canada. So what do you think Hermione will see in the Mirror of Erezet if she ever saw it? If she ever went to the Mirror of Erezet? What do you think her deepest desire is? That's it. I love your show. Bye. I think that Hermione would find it kind of dangerous. I think that she would go with Dumbledore on the fact that... People have gone insane in front of it, and people have kind of wasted away their lives and, you know, thrown any ambition out the window just because they're sitting there so transfixed on what this mirror shows them. I don't think Hermione would have any interest in wanting to look into it. I think if she were there, she would have gone all Hermione on them and gotten into a huff and been like, I'm not going to look at that. And that's just how I think she would have reacted. I think that makes sense. But also... If she somehow did look in, and her desire was Ron, and she wanted him but not to get him, but to get him anyway, and she somehow got him, not that that makes any sense, but it never did anyway, um, would Ron, would she actually get Ron, or would the Ron in the mirror come out to her? Harry wants the stone, and that light comes out to him. No, that, w- that was just for the stone. That wasn't, that wasn't for anyone else. That was just for the stone. All right, so next week we will continue to answer your general voicemail questions. We thank you for sending them in. Don't forget, uh, you call them in to 1-218-20-MAGIC. Let's wrap up this week's show with favorites. We are going to play Favorite Defense Against the Dark Arts Teacher. I'll go with Lupin. It's an easy one, but... Why? Why Lupin? He's just the man. He, he probably taught Harry the most about what he would need to use in the future in terms of defense against the dark arts, if you think about all the things that went on in his class. I agree with Micah. And he's a werewolf. I mean, come on. I would have to say that my favorite would be Umbridge, and not because, just not because oh, I love her. No, no, it's it's not like a love sort of thing. Like, I, I like her character and, and what she did with the school. I, you know, I always talk about it on the show, but I just really enjoyed that. Yeah, I... 
I would agree. I think Umbridge, as much as we all hate her, I think she's my favorite character because she exercises all of her power. She really uses herself to her full potential. She uses everything she has, all of her resources, to achieve her goals. And from that, we, you know, she screws a lot of people over, and she really causes the plot to happen. She drives the plot. My second favorite, even though we're only doing favorites, would be Lockhart, because he never goes away, and we saw him in book five, and he's just one of those characters that really doesn't get a clue, and he's just there. So Lockhart, but Lupin, of course, never mind, I'm sorry. Well, for me, I really like all of them, because I think at different points during the books, they all had something interesting to offer, and they all had some really cool way of twisting the plot, but I think if I had to pick one, it would be Imposter Moody, just because that was such a huge plot twist. Oh, Laura, you stole mine. I know, I'm so sorry. But, but no, it was mainly just because of the plot and the fact that, you know, everyone thought that Barty Crouch Jr. was dead, and then all of a sudden, it turns out that he had been in such close contact with Harry the whole year. It's just really cool. Well, I'm gonna do a, a hybrid here. I'm gonna say... Uh, Imposter Moody and Lupin. I'm going with both of them. I don't know. I think they both brought their own little contribution to the series and that it... They both both were really fun years. Prisoner of Azkaban was the first Harry Potter book. It was probably when I really, really started to enjoy him. I mean, I like Chamber of Secrets and uh, Sorcerer's Stone. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that I think they got really good once Prisoner of Azkaban hit. And same thing, same thing with Goblet of Fire. So Well, with that, I think that does wrap up MuggleCast 38. This was a longer one than usual. Or I think it will by the time it's edited down. Uh, for the record, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're up to 2 hours and 18 minutes of recording. Yeah. Uh, if you look at your cute little iPod right now, it's probably at like an hour and a half. <laughs> so... <laughs> Andrew, wouldn't it be cool when you're editing and you hear yourself say that and you're, like, at 45 minutes or something? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, that would stink. Yeah. It'll probably be, like, 10 minutes because usually yeah. I have this little <laughs> filter that takes out everything that you say. <laughs> so it'll probably be down to a 10-minute show. So with that, once again, I'm Andrew Sims. I am Ben Chain. I'm laying back and almost choking on my gum. I'm Laura Thompson. And I'm Mike Tannenbaum. Next week on episode 39, Eric Skull will not be on the show because he will have choked to death. And do not forget, (laughs) do not forget, National Wear Your MuggleCast Shirt Day is on June 2nd. Order now or else you're going to be out, out, out of luck. So we'll see everyone next week for episode 39. I can't wait to episode 40. Now moving on to our character discussion. It's back! It's back! Oh, pray sweet baby Jesus, it's back. <laughs> I don't think you can include religion in the show. Oh, man. How Let's do see, you uh, have any fans when you make <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I really don't get it. Oh, thanks, sweet baby Jesus.